Because what is the main goal? The main goal, I read something actually on Twitter this morning. Uh, one of the pastors I follow, he said, the main goal of preaching is not getting us to live good lives. But the main goal of preaching is getting, is, is getting us to have a life that images Christ. That he becomes greater in us and we become less in us. And so, you know, a lot of churches, they spend a lot of time on preaching against sinful things, right? You ever been in churches that they kind of concentrate on the do's, the don'ts and the do's instead of the who, you know? And that's what we don't want to be like. We don't, though you do have to preach on the do's and the don'ts, but you don't want to have that as the preeminent part of, of your church. And Paul you know, the book of Romans, for years when I was a kind of early Christian, I, I kind of skirted away from Romans because it's a deep, heavy, theological book. And I thought it was pretty much, you know, you know, we're a sinner, get saved, don't do this, don't do that, that kind of thing. Since we've spent, you know, off and on about two years now, just in the first five chapters of Romans, I've gotten to the point where I absolutely, absolutely love Romans. When I preach and teach other things, I see Romans filtering in through everything that I teach and I see. That book, this book is so amazing. So now Paul has laid down the truth of this. We are sinners. We don't please God the way we are. We actually seek to please ourselves. Even given the truth that there is a God Apart, in and of ourselves, we won't even go after God. We, we will rather go after our imaginations and our creations more than go and worship a creator God, right? I mean, it says that in Romans chapter 1, Carolyn's chapter 2, it tells us these things. And, and, and so he lays down the fact that we are lost and we're a sinner, but God's grace is so much more abounding and powerful than any sin that's out there, than anything that you can do, than any sinner that is out there. God's grace is so much more. Are you glad this morning for a grace, for the grace of God that surpasses any sin that you've ever committed? I don't know about you, but I've often thought, you know, um, how in the world could God forgive me of that? The reason he can forgive me of whatever is because his grace that condescends to me and that brings me salvation is greater than any sin. Are we missing somebody? Okay. I thought maybe Mike escaped, you know, because he did that the other week. So... His grace is greater than anything that, that we could ever do. That's what Paul's basically said here. You know, he's established the fact that we are pretty depraved. But now he's also established the fact that we are justified by a grace that outabounds the depravity of any sin that, that could ever be said, done, or heard of. You know, we like to use extremes when we make comparisons, don't we? 
So what extreme do you usually use when you're trying to describe evil? Anybody? Man, they're so bad, they're like Hitler. Isn't he the extreme that people use? If you really want to describe someone that is beyond saving, beyond grace, beyond everything, you know, so evil and so utterly depraved and hateful and wicked and horrible, you, you, you compare them to like a Hitler, uh, you know, description. But you want to know something? And this might make some people upset. But do you know what Paul teaches us here is that God's grace could even have saved Hitler? Did you, did you know that? Do, do you all agree with that? I, I mean, his grace is so much so that if Hitler, before he, he died and, you know, he took his own life, before that happened, if he had in true repentance looked to Christ in faith, he would have been, by God, forgiven for all those millions and millions and millions of deaths. And we're not just talking about what the six million Jews that were slaughtered in the, in the Holocaust. But the millions and countless millions of people that were killed and destroyed because of his pride, hatred, and arrogance. And bringing this world into a second world war, right? Now we don't want to think that. You say, oh pastor, that's an extreme. Well, you know what? I don't know if this is true. I think it was Ted Bundy. I, I read somewhere, was it Ted Bundy that got had a prison uh, salvation experience? Had you read about this? I, I read this somewhere. Now, how true it is, I don't know. Because you know what? A lot of times people make Christians out of people who've never come to Jesus Christ. We, we have a habit of doing that in politics sometimes. You know, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. He was a deist. He didn't believe in salvation solely through Jesus Christ. He, he didn't. I've, I've read his words. I know that as a fact. But you read some history books, and they'll have Thomas Jefferson as a Christian. Now, Ted Bundy, I've read this story that he had a prison uh, conversion, and he came to Christ, and that he became a believer in salvation. And the people that commented and the people that, that said how horrible that was, even Christians who were a, 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 just aghast that he could have become a Christian. The truth is, I don't know if that's a true story, but the teaching point is true. That even Ted Bundy, who murdered all those people, and wasn't he a cannibal or something? And ate, ate his victims? Yeah, if they, ugh, you know? God's grace was enough to even abound over his sinfulness. Isn't that an amazing thing to see? That's our Jesus, guys. Look, look, go with me. Romans 5, verse 20. How deep, we sing about how deep the Father's love is for us, right? Have you ever thought how deep God's grace goes to reach even the most vile and wicked offender of God's law and word and covenant and grace? It abounds. We are taught in our word that nobody is outside the ability 
of salvation because God's grace is greater than any sin. Don't we sing a song? Isn't there a song about God's grace is greater than any sin that we have? I mean, isn't that a wonderful thing? Jojo, you, you know what it is? Yeah, grace greater than all our sins. It, that's a wonder. Amen? That's good. That's an amazing thing. And Romans 5 says, Moreover, the law entered. The law entered so that the offense of sin would abound. But where sin abounded, get this, grace did much more abound. That word abound means to superabound. As bad as Stephen McConnell is, God's grace is greater. Amen. And be, because, because Steve Messersmith is just as bad. And God's grace is just as superabundantly able to save. Nobody, I believe this with all my heart, nobody is outside the doors of grace. The only way that they are is if they do not repent. You know, God's grace is available to everybody who would to look and live. It's because that shows the power of God's saving grace. Sin has reigned unto death. We see it every day. But even so, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I love Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. I, I, I think about it like this. God's law, it was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. This, it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about, it's about clarity of truth of who you and I are. And that, that's God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. You know why? Because it was always abundant. It's not that it became because sin grew. Grace was always super abundantly more than sin. And that is why nobody is outside the saving power of grace. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, Another description of God's grace. Now, God's wonderful grace rules instead. Now, that's in verse 21. What I would do, if, if you have your Bibles with you, I would underline this little thought. That God's wonderful grace rules instead. It might be translated in your Bible this way. That grace might reign through. Grace reigns. That is an indispensable truth that Paul's going to continue to establish. See, we're fixing to go into chapter 6. 6 through 8 is taking that theological truth that we've been given and practically applying it to our life in the sense of how do we live this truth out? The truth that we are saved. The truth that we are justified by God's grace alone. We are made righteous. We are in rightness with God now because His Son's righteousness has covered us. And that has been done through faith in Jesus Christ. How can we take that truth 
and live today. Go to work tomorrow. You know, how, how you know, someone came to me after the morning message and, and she, he, it, they said, you've just described my last three years of school. And she began to cry. And I thought, the way you made it through was because of God's grace covering your sin. You see, how do we take this truth and go to school with it and go to work with it? And how do we take this truth of being justified and live our life with all that comes against us? And now Paul's going to tell us. And, and, and he says, we have been, we have just, sometimes I get ahead of my thoughts. Let me read what I've written. We've just studied what's happened to us through being justified by faith, not by anything that we've done. So when it comes to the gospel truth, there are two ideas. Our world lives in two categories when it comes to gospel truth. We... We either live in the category of legalism or we live in the category of liberalism. God says you're saved by grace. Now, on one end of this spectrum, we have legalism. On the other end, we have liberalism and we have the gospel message in the middle. What is the gospel message that you say by grace? But the world lives in two categories, either legalistically speaking or liberalistically speaking. What is legalism? Legalism is, by definition, the excessive adherence to law or to a formula. The legalist says, I have to do, right? To be right with God, I have to do something. Liberalism says, you don't have to do anything, man. You can just be the way you are. The gospel says neither one of them is right. The truth is God's grace is sufficient and needed to cover your sins. But you and I have to live this truth of the gospel in the world. So we're either going to combat one of those two extremes, legalism or liberalism. Liberalism is, a for, is, a, is an approach to religious faith that basically is critical of it, it's rationalistic in its views, and it's humanistic at its core. So liberalism says man is the, is the identity. Legalism says works is the identity. Gospel truth says Christ is our identity through grace. Now, how are we going to take this truth of being saved out into this world where it says, legalism says, work out your own righteousness. Liberalism says, you don't need righteousness. Live any way you want. Legalism says, you know what? Sin only affects individuals, so just go and do evangelism, and everybody will get right and get holy, and we'll change and create a righteous nation. That's legalism. Liberalism says, we don't understand sin we don't understand the depth of human depravity. So you know what? Let's just go do good deeds. And let's just make the world better that way. Legalism says you're guilty. 
and you're shameful. And because you're guilty and shameful, you need to work so that the guilt will dissipate. Liberalism says, what's guilt? There's, you're okay. You're fine. There are churches today that preach liberal, religious liberalism. They're all about social action, but no gospel action. How do you take this truth that you're justified into a world that's working on two, one of two bases? Work your way to God, or you don't need God. How do you do that? You go to work tomorrow. Now, some of you will have believers in your workplace, won't you? Praise God for that. Some of you will be dealing with the very opposite ends of spectrum of sin and and all the things that we're dealing with in our world today, won't you? So how you deal with that? You know, I have a friend that has to work with people that are very open uh, about their sin. And he has to take a very solid stance and say, look, your business, my business. You know, that's a difficult thing. How do you live out the justification of Christ in front of people? You know, legalism says, you know what? You've done something wrong, just repent. And we agree to that, don't we? We need to repent. But it's more than that. Liberalism says there's no need of repentance. Pastor, why would you say there's more than just repent? Because it has to be more than, oh, I'm just sorry. You know, I've done wrong, you know, but it has to be a repentance and a forsaking. Got to walk away from that baby, amen? You know? And, and so how do you take this with the justification, the fact that the grace gospel of Jesus Christ is so more abundantly able to save anybody And yet we live in a world that seems like sin is abounding and grace is not abounding. How do we live in a world like that? Well, Timothy Keller kind of says it this way. My words. Why do I say this to you? Why do I show this to you? Because the gospel message is between these two heretical views. And if we are gospel people, that means we are living in a world between these two heretical views. They're constantly pulling at us, constantly trying to affect our minds. I was, I was, I was talking to Darren tonight, or this afternoon. I, I stopped him over here, and I told him, I said, Darren, I pray for you, and I was thinking about you this week when I was preparing this message. I said, I bet it's tough at school sometimes being a Christian. You know, he looked at me. And he said, yes, it is. Renee, how old's Darren? Ten? Just, didn't he? Just read. January. Ten years old. That young man is battling this. People who are saying, you work your way to God. People are saying, you don't need to do anything to work your way to God. And here's Darren in the middle. I'm saved. I have a creator God. He's created me with a purpose. The gospel is powerful and overwhelming and can save anybody. How do I live in a world like this? How do I take this gospel to the world? How do I have more grace in my life so that I can live for Jesus? Tim Keller says, you know, God is holy. 
So our sins require that we be punished. The gospel tells us you are more sinful than, than, than you ever dare believe. And to forget that leaves to a licentious life and to permissiveness in our lives. To forget that we are that way will lead us to sin. To what we would call liberalism. But then he goes on to say, God is gracious. So in Christ our sins are dealt with. And the gospel tells us you are more accepted in Christ than you dared hope. To forget this leads to legalism. Do you understand? Paul's dealing with the gospel in the midst of two heresies. Now Paul says, I've taught you what justification is. Now you ought to go, you've got to go out in this world and live out this justified life. How do we do it? Well, there's a rhetorical question that Paul gets to in chapter 6. He says, should I sin so that grace may abound? My answer is, and Paul's answer is, and God's answer is, absolutely not. Do you know why? Because of the beauty of the gospel. Listen, do you know what the real difference in our world is? It's not religion. It's not being a Baptist or a, a C of E or a Presbyterian or any other denomination. Sometimes I really get fed up with denominational divisions. But do you want to know what the real difference in our world is? It is this and only this. It is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles. Go back to chapter 1. Go to verse 16. We spent a few weeks on this way, way long time ago. But don't ever forget how precious this thing is. You know, Paul's telling us, you're saved. you got to go live in this world. There's liberalism on one hand, legalism on another, but the gospel message is in the middle. How do we live out this? You know, can I tell you this? Number one thing is you and I need to understand that there is no greater thing in this world than the message of the gospel. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I've taken it to the known world as far as I can reach. I've taken three missionary journeys. My life has been in peril. I've been forsaken by my friends and by my coworkers. I've lost family. I've lost physically. I have nothing left in this world, but there's nothing greater to me than the gospel message of Christ because it saves and it saves to the uttermost because it is so much more abundantly powerful than any sin that is in this world or sinner that is in this world. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and the Greek, me, Gentile. Amen? Amen. You know what I want my big kids or my little kids, all my kids, they're all getting too big for me. You know, I was going to embarrass you, but I chose not to. <laughs> Don't egg her on, Hazel. <laughs> she was having a phone call last night, but I'll leave that alone. Amen. <laughs> I'm not ready for these phone calls. I'll just leave it at that. 
don't you laugh. <laughs> you know what I want? What I want for Emily and Stephen, what I want for Darren and Abby, what I want, want for Ryan, what I want for Ashley, what I want for, for Jasmine, what I want for Jay, what I want for all of them is that there's nothing more important and greater in their life than the knowledge of the gospel. Because that, that will change everything. You, you see, Paul says, it is the power of God. Do you know what the difference is? The difference in our world is the gospel. So Paul says you're justified. How do you take that into the world? How do you live with the liberalism? How do you live with the legalism? How do you live with the stupid banners and posters of, of depraved morality always so, so abundantly in your face? How do you live with that? How do you live with people telling you? I had someone this week. They said, they're a Christian, and they said to me, they said, yeah, 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 they all think I'm a Bible basher. Don't wear that as a negative. Wear that as a prideful, in a good way, badge of honor. I don't want to be called a Bible basher, but what they're really saying is, you believe in absolute truths of God's word, that's what you are. That's what I am. Amen? How do I live in this world? Well, number one, I live with the understanding that the difference in this world is the gospel. It's not me. It's not my methodologies. It's not all the stuff that you and I do. They're wonderful when they're tools of the gospel, but the difference maker is the gospel. And that's what Paul's talking about. Look how beautiful, again, he describes the gospel in verses chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. I think I, I read them this morning. He just told us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. Now in verse, chapter 5, verse 16, he tells us this. What Adam did, man, it's nothing compared to what Jesus did. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Judgment came from one offense resulting in condemnation. But God's free gift of grace came even through many offenses of people, but results yet in justification for the one who receives Christ. Chapters 1 through 5 gave us doctrine and theology. Chapters 6 through 8 tells us what God will accomplish in us through the gospel. You want to accomplish something in our life? We go to university. We get big degrees. We try to go get jobs, and I'm all for that. I want them to get jobs, I'll, the big jobs, you know. I want them to make money. I have a retirement plan. It's them. My Harley needs to be upgraded, man. You know, if that happens, praise God. But if they end up in some far-flung country that has no name, where you can't even talk about the people that they're living with, and they're teaching and telling them about Jesus Christ, and I won't see them again until Jesus comes, then I praise God for that. Because the only real difference maker in this world is the gospel. Amen? That's the difference maker. 
And this is what Paul's saying. Got theology? Now how is that going to, what is that going to accomplish in your life? What is the gospel doing in your world today? Amen? What's that question? Ask that question to yourself. What's the gospel in your life doing in our world through you today? That's a scary and wonderful thought. See, we often think that we have to accomplish something. You know, we have to run ministries. We have to do this and we have to do that. And we've got to come up with this new next great theme. And we have to, right? What did Peter, James, and John do? They didn't run all these programs and all these extra things. And I like stuff. But that's not how they affected the world. You know how they did it? Dude, I haven't got any money. But what I do have, I give to you. Rise up in the name of Jesus and walk. You know? And then right after that, Peter got up there and he preached a beautiful message of Christ. And people came and people got saved. That's how we changed the world. You know? Part of me, I've really struggled with not having church at 5 o'clock on Sunday. I have struggled with that immensely up until the last couple of months. Do you know, over the last couple of months, I needed the rest. I needed some time in Sunday evening. You know what? A lot of times I go home, I go home, I eat a sandwich, I sleep for the next three hours or so. And, And I've needed the rest. A couple of weeks ago, we went out with a a family in the church and spent a good four, I don't know, four or five hours with them, just fellowshipping and talking. Last Sunday, we took a couple of the young people at home to my house, and I thought, oh, we'll have lunch, they'll leave, I'll go to sleep. Do you know what time the last young person left my house? It's nearly 10 o'clock at night. What are you people doing here? Leave. No, 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 I'm kidding. Do you know what, though? Man. There is something beautiful and refreshing and wonderful about God's people resting and rejoicing and serving together in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know what happened last week? My son, Zach, who you know is running from Jesus, he sat around when Johnny and Joe and Seb and a couple of young people from our church were over at our house last week and socialized with him. Pastor, what does that do? You know what it does? It lets him see the effects of the gospel in people's lives. Isn't that what's supposed to isn't that what we're supposed to be living for? Paul talks about this radical gospel that changes everything. I got a question for us this afternoon. How's it changing us? Has it created in us a radical gospel living individual? Paul says this. You might think that by hearing my description of grace and justification that that there's this super amount of grace that comes your way no matter what your sin is. You might say and ask yourself this question. Well then, should we continue in sin so that grace abounds? Now you look at that and you're thinking, all right, 
don't need to spend a lot of time on this. The answer is no, absolutely not. We don't sin to get more grace. But you know what? That's a very profound thought to me. Because you know what Paul's saying? Paul's answering the question because it's rhetorical. No one's asked it, but he's put it in a question to get people to think. And here's the question. Here's the thought. Here's what he's trying to get you and I to think. He's trying to get us to realize that we need God's grace to live this life and to present the gospel to the world and to deal with liberalism and legalism and to be the gospel truth in the middle of a world of heresy, how do we live? We need God's grace. How do you get it? It's not by sin. It's by something else. And Paul's going to take the rest of chapter 6 and teach us how we do that, what we're supposed to do to live abundantly in the life of grace. But he says something here that I think I want to spend just our closing amount of time on. He asks, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Then he gives the reason why. Why should we no longer sin? Why should we not think that sin would bring more grace? Because of what he says now. How shall we continue in sin, who died to sin, live any longer in it. I would highlight those words, dead to sin or died to sin. You and I, and how we live in grace in this world, it's number one, the fact is that we are dead to the power of sin in our life. But you know what, I don't know about you, but I've struggled with this verse in my life. You know, I remember being a new Christian. I'd go home from my construction job, getting ready to clean up so that I can go to UPS and load trailers until about 1130, and then come home, eat food, go to sleep, and do it all over again the next day. And I'd read my Bible, and I'd get to this verse, dead to sin. And I'd ask myself a question. Well, if I am dead to sin, why do I keep sinning? And then you know what Satan says to me? Because you're not really saved. Now, don't raise your hand, but you ever had that thought? See, you read the Bible, and, man, I remember one night we were laying in bed in Beltsville, and I'm reading this scripture, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, maybe I'm not really saved. Because if I'm, the Bible says if you get justified and you're saved, you're dead to sin. And my thinking is dead to sin means that sin has no influence, no power, no effect, no, no, no anything in your life. It's like this. I was door knocking one day up in uh, 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 Market Harbor, and I knocked on this guy's door, and we got talking. He, says, yeah, he said he was a Christian, and you know, got to know him a little bit. He started coming to church for about a month or so, not very long. And he, t- he said to this, he said to me, he said, I believe in the doctrine dead to sin. I said, what do you mean? He says, I no longer sin. It doesn't have an effect with me in me. I don't, I'm not tempted. I don't have a completely and utterly sin doesn't even touch me anymore. And I'm just sitting there looking at him and think, you're so wrong. See, I, I've underst- I understand now what dead to sin means. And I understand, though I still sin, I am dead to sin, but I am saved as well, though I still sin, right? You know what happened? We, we had a banquet at our church, but we went to a restaurant. 
And that member, and that guy, though he wasn't a member, he went along to the Christmas banquet and he went to the restaurant. He got there a little bit early. By the time we got there, he was already rosy, he was already rosy cheeked. By the time we left that joint, he was stumbly. The boy got drunk right there in that, in that restaurant. I'm not judging him, but here's what the Bible says, that drunkenness is a sin, right? So if he's dead to sin, what is all this? The point is this, dead to sin doesn't mean that you will never sin. What does it mean? What does dead to sin mean? Does it mean we will no longer want to sin? Because I don't know about you, there have been times in my life that I really wanted to sin. How about you? There have been times in my life that I have sinned and, and I've gotten so angry that I wanted to knock someone's lights out. I've, I've gotten stuff, stuff in my heart at times in my life that I wanted to shoot off a list of profanities. I wanted to, you know, there have been times I'm walking down the, 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 the road and I take a look left and I see a, a, a very provocative picture of a woman, right? What does my head and other, my, you know, the flesh, what does it do? It says, look, 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 right? So being dead to sin doesn't mean, because my brain is thinking, you want to look, don't you? You want to look, don't you? You want to look, don't you? That's the battle that we live in. And if you don't believe that we live in a battle with sin, read Romans 7. All right, we'll get there shortly, maybe five years from now, but we'll get there shortly. Now, read Romans 7. It tells you the battle Paul has with the, with, with the flesh. So being dead to sin, Paul says that living in this world being the gospel witness between liberalism and legalism, that the gospel is the most important thing, living out that life so people can see that's our calling. Now that I've told you what this is all about, how are you going to live it in the world? Paul says, you don't carry on sinning so that you can have more grace so that you can live for God. He said, the truth is, you're dead to sin, but yet... Even Paul tells us, the things I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I do. So being dead to sin, does it mean that we no longer want to sin? Does it mean that sin no longer has an influence or a pull on us? I just illustrated, and, and I don't want you to acknowledge anything, but you know in your heart there are times sin has a pull on you. It's not that you sin or commit to sin. But there's a pull on you, isn't there? So what does dead to sin mean? Does it mean that? Does it mean that, that, that we're actually, as we grow in Christ, that we're moving away from sin? In some ways, yes. But you know, oftentimes, in some ways, behold, it's like sin is at the door. It's like right there. I think I've told you before, and I'll tell you, if I haven't told you before, I'll tell you now. There is not one sin that a believer could not commit if we stop being in step with Christ. If we stop being in step with, step with Christ, we can sin and do almost anything. Why? Because we are dead to sin, 
But sin is not yet dead to us. It's going after us. The temptations are there. Does being dead to sin meaning that sin's grab or desire toward us is weakening? What does this thing of dead in sin? I've wondered about this truth for a long, long time. Because if I'm dead in sin, why do I still sin? If any of you know, we've been, all of us in this room, you know, look around, been safe for quite some time. I'd venture to say that in the amount of time that we've all been saved, we've also all have sinned. John tells us, I've written these things to you, my beloved, so that you don't sin. But if you do, remember this, you have an advocate. John's even telling you, in essence, yeah, there's going to be times that you mess up. And when you do, you just go talk to Christ. Confess it, put it in his hands, give it to him. Repent of it, walk away, go on. We are going to sin. But you know what? To know what dead to sin means is a real blessing. It's a real encouragement to my heart, and I'm sure it'll be to yours. See, the moment you become a believer, according to the Bible, what dead to sin means is that sin is simply no longer the ruling force in your life. You remember what the Bible says? Listen, listen to these verses. Romans 6, 11. Reckon yourselves... To be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. In Galatians it says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Hung them on the cross. Colossians says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Peter joins the fray and says this, Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. What is the point of these verses and some others I will read to you? The point is this, we have been delivered from the power of sin ruling in our lives. So being dead to sin means this, Sin is still there. The, the sinful nature is still within us. It will fight us and go after us and exist. But when we came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the work on the cross, God did exactly what he told Satan in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what he told him? He, you, Satan, will hurt him. You'll kick his heel. You'll, you'll wound his heel but he will crush your head. Head is the place of authority and power. What that means is this, that the work of Christ on the cross has destroyed the power of Satan. Let me illustrate it this way. Two armies, sorry, two armies. They go to battle. One army loses. The army's not totally wiped out, is it? Their weapons are taken. Their command is destructured. They've, they've, they, they've, you know, completely overpowered the enemy. But some of the enemy runs away, runs from the conquering army. 
goes into the woods. What do they become? They become guerrilla warfare fighters. What then do they do? They don't have a mass army powerful enough to overcome and vanquish the conquering military. What do they do? They harass. Don't they? They come out of the woods and they, they, they take a shot here. They take a shot there. They go back into the woods. They hide for a little bit. Then they come back out and they attack again in a different place in a different place. That is what sin does to us now that we're saved. God has defeated the power of Satan in our lives. We have become dead to sin. But until Christ returns and we're with him, we are with him for eternity, guess what we have? Sin is a guerrilla warfare fighter. It will raise its ugly teeth and head and attack here and there. That's what Paul's trying to tell you. What that means is this. You've won the war. But until the king and commanding officer returns, or you go to him in death, there's, there are a few little battles that you will face now and again because that pesky little sin army still rear, rears, rears its ugly head sometimes. That's what he means by we're dead to sin. See, Louisa, when you get saved, the point is this. Sin doesn't rule in your life, but it's there to annoy you sometimes through temptation and other things. See, sin still has power. Let's not lie about that. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Sin still has power, but it can no longer force its dictates on you and I when we're saved because we've died to the power of sin over us. See, remember, if you go back and read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, it's the scriptures that talk about the wrath of God and, and the punishment and, and the depravity of man and, and sin just kind of like, you know, just having total control on all those people who've rejected God and that God has given them over to their lusts and sin. See, that's the picture of what it is to be outside of Christ. There's no power against sin. Power has full control over the individual. We're given completely to our sinful desires. We were completely under their control. But now in Christ, we are dead to sin. And that means that sin no longer dominates us. Sin no longer is the ruling king in our life. Sin will throw a spear and a dart every now and again. But it cannot dictate and dominate us. See, the Bible says simply this. Because we are dead in Christ, we are, yeah, that we are dead in Christ, we're dead in, to sin in Christ, we are the gospel influence in this world. We live amongst the two heresies that say we don't need the gospel, we have liberalism. We just do what we want, feel what we want, live the way we want. We don't need the gospel truth that Christ is sufficient because you know what? We're legalists. 
We say, go and knock on a bunch of doors so you can be one of the 144,000. We say, you go and baptize yourself in the name of the church because we're Catholic or Mormon. And then you get to God that way. That is legalism. The gospel's in the middle and says none of that's right. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that a person can be saved. And when you get saved, you don't need that because you're dead to sin. Sin doesn't dominate your life. Christ dominates your life. That's the beautiful picture of this. Colossians 1 says, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. What does Acts tell us about the gospel? About Jesus? About what He's come to do? About the mission of Paul? All of that? To open their eyes. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. What did Paul say? God's power, God's grace. Man, there's no match for it. Completely covers it. But that sin, it's pesky. It's still going to bother you. That's why you need to live in grace. So the question is, should we sin more to have more grace? Paul says, no, you're dead to that power. So here's what you do. You live unto the power of Christ in you. Amen? Isn't that cool? So having died to sin does not mean that sin no longer is within us or that it has no more power or influence within you. It, it does, in a sense, but sin, but what being dead to sin means is this. It no longer rules your life. It does not dictate to you all that you do. Though at times we may obey it, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. You have died to its power. It can be dead to you. And in Christ, there is power to live. So you know what being dead to, to sin means? simply means this. We now have the ability to resist and to rebel against it. Do you know what? The call today is fight, fight, fight. In the grace of God, fight. Stand. Isn't that what Ephesians says? Stand, having done all to stand, and put on the armor of God. Amen? Hey, so how do you take the gospel to your workplace? How do you take the gospel to school? How do you take the gospel to our neighbors? We got new neighbors moving in. I, I, I met one of them the other day. They are so opposite, Lisa and I, I can't tell you. They drive Audis and a Mercedes and something else. They bought two houses in Hammersmith. Probably only about 50 grand a piece, right? Hmm. Bought two houses in Hammersmith that are next to each other, and they're spending the next year having it renovated into one house. Their shoes probably cost more than my car. They are rich and wealthy, and you know all I saw was an opportunity to be sought in light. Do you know why? Because the gospel in us is we've become dead to sin. And we become heirs of the gospel truth. And that is what we are to live out in our life. Do we sin to have more grace power? No. We're dead to it. We live in the power of God.
to have the ability to live this life that he's called us to. And I'll close with this verse, Romans 5.21. I love it. So that as sin, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Amen? Grace. Let's pray.